Friends and welcome to another edition of Dan and Betty in the Ring, our first episode of 2022. I'm Dan Spasciano, joined as always by the BS Express himself, Benny Scala. Benny, how you doing, buddy? All I can say, it's a new year and we're still here. That's a great thing, right? Ain't that the truth? You know, it's funny. We've done a lot on this show as far as uh, authors, books, movies, but uh, we're going to do something a little different today, and we're going to talk, uh, and we're going to give the plug to a friend of ours, a friend of the show, who's got a new podcast out. Benny, why don't you tell everybody who we got on the line with us? Yeah, actually, this gentleman was with us only five weeks ago, and we were talking about his fantastic book, uh, Minnesota's Golden Age of Wrestling, From Vern Gagne to the Road Warriors. And uh, we're here tonight for a uh, for an entirely different reason, which we'll get into momentarily. But for now, let me just introduce uh, now podcaster and wrestling historian George Shire. George, welcome back to Dan and Betty in the Ring. Benny, Dan, it is awesome. I was surprised and I'm honored that uh, you're bringing me back so soon. Well, you know, it's a. Uh... It was great to have you. We had a lot of fun talking to you last time. And like we said, I mean, I don't think it could have been any more true uh, that we could talk for another several hours and not scratch the surface of all your stories. George, I appreciate you giving us the time. Um, as I mentioned at the top of the show, the one of the reasons that, that we, we wanted to bring you back and we wanted to talk about is you premiered. Uh, we're recording this on Tuesday. Uh, you premiered your AWA Unleashed podcast. Uh, so why don't you tell us everything about that? Well, first and foremost, I, I just want to make it really clear to everyone that it's not my podcast. It's our podcast because Mick Karch, the voice of Minnesota wrestling and myself, we are teamed up on this to do it together. Uh, both of us go back 50 years. We've been friends that long. And we've done a lot of things in wrestling together. We've broadcast together in the past for wrestling cards. We've both been wrestling announcers. We've done television. And I've done a million podcasts over the last 10 or 15 years. So this is a natural. And we hooked up with a guy named Chris Tubbs. And Chris is a local uh, Minnesota WCCO radio personality. He is the man that's floating our boat, so to speak, because he is the one that's doing all the technical work, all the production work, all the behind the scenes, moving the mouses and plugs and whatever, because I can't do that. I don't want to do that. And I move my mouse and my computer blows up. So <laughs> we we need Chris and he is a great asset to us. Man, that man has worked so hard to get our podcast out, get it put together. And so he's our our third man in this in this uh, three-man tag team. And what Mick and I are going to do is we're going to be telling stories. We're going to be talking about the characters. We're going to talk about the personalities. We're going to talk about the little conflicts in the ring, outside the ring. We're going to talk about things that happened that shouldn't have happened, things that happened they didn't know were going to happen. I mean, we're going to tell the story of the AWA. Mick has got a lot of fun stories to tell, as do I. I stick more to the history side of things. I want to make sure when we talk about the AWA that it's factual. And regardless of what some people can read on websites and other Facebook pages, 
It's not always true. They they heard this or they heard that. They make up stuff, I think, as they type sometimes and create stories that weren't true. So that's why it's important for me. And that'll be my role in it. And so our first uh, edition, our first episode aired today. It is available out there on all kinds of platforms, uh, Spotify and uh, I can't even I can't even name them all. It's on Amazon and YouTube and and all kinds of places that uh, Chris Tubbs has us on. So uh, we're excited about it. We hope folks are going to watch it, listen to it, subscribe to it, criticize it, give us good good comments, whatever. That's what we're looking for. George, I, I told you before the broadcast that I actually did listen to it this afternoon. I want to tell everybody that if you're an old school wrestling fan, you are definitely in for for a treat. Um, I got into Vern Gagne and uh, Wally Carbo the first episode. But I'm sure that there is like a tremendous amount of uh, stories to, to tell. Um, will there ever be any live guests on the show, George? We are definitely planning to have um, live guests on the show. You know, the, the whole thing is we talked in the beginning. We said, well, gee, who can we get? You know, can we have wrestlers and other personalities on? And the, rest, the wrestler pool, you know, that worked for the AWA, um, sadly, there's not a lot of them not left, lot left yeah. but you know, we've got friends of ours like Greg Gagne and Jim Brunzel and, and, uh, Baron Von Raschke and, uh, you know, some of those that are still with us. Yeah, we are, we are reaching out to them and, and they will at, for, at their convenience, hopefully be able to give some insight too. And, uh, that'll be a fun thing to do. And that's, I mean, that list right there. You're going to get lifetimes of stories from them. I mean, um, uh, the Baron was just on AEW television showing that he the claw is still one of the deadliest moves in wrestling. I saw that. I saw that. Um, you know, and he tells that great story about uh, the Baron tells the great story of how when he became Baron Von Raschke, he was in a match with Pat O'Connor. And during the course of the match, Pat whispered to him, put the claw on me. And Baron says, what is the claw? And he told him, in during the match, Pat told him, take your hand and put it over my top of my head and and I'll play, I'll play it from there. And sure enough, they did. And of course, that's where the claw came from. So Baron has a lot of fun stories. And uh, I remember, you know, I, I one of the things I'm not going to do is give away things that we are going to share down the road. But, but I will also add that everything we do, Mick and I, at least it was today when we started out. We have no script. We are we are playing off of each other, and we're letting Chris Tubbs give us some you know leadership with questions or whatever. But we we go with it. So a lot of it's going to be spontaneous, and I think that'll make for a very natural show. And we'll probably get the best out of it than trying to just rehearse stuff or put stuff down that you know we got to pay attention to. And when we're talking about the Baron. Um, I interviewed the Baron one time, and he told me the story about when he went into St. Louis. And Sam Muchnick told him that he couldn't be called the Baron because he had a world champion, you know, the NWA world champion, and a Baron could be considered better than a champion, a world champion. That was Sam's logic. And so in St. Louis, Baron Von Raschke, if you look at any program and listen to any of the Wrestling at the Chase TV shows, he was always just Von Raschke. 
And Baron, through this sly sense of humor, says to me during that interview, he said, so I go into St. Louis and I'm demoted. <laughs> but, you know, it's cute little things like that. But he was Baron von Raschke everywhere else he went. And sometimes Baron Fritz von Raschke, they, some territories had Fritz thrown in there for some reason. But uh, only in St. Louis, he was just von Raschke. That's awesome. So, you know, you said uh, that you're going to call it in the ring, play it by ear. You know, no, uh, but you also don't want to give away too much in the future. Benny, you were saying you have a request, an episode you wanted, uh, hoping they'd do. Well, I read about it in the magazines when I was a kid, Hard Boiled Haggerty. And I think you actually have a picture, if I'm, memory serves me correctly, in the book of uh, H.B., well, he was the original HBH, I guess, right? Not HBK and uh, JFK. That is true. Um, there is a picture in my book of hard-boiled Haggerty and John Kennedy, our president in 1960 to 63. And uh, the other person in the picture is Mrs. Orville Freeman. She was Orville Freeman's wife. Orville Freeman was one of our governors in Minnesota. So, but she's in the picture with him. And Haggerty actually met with uh, John Kennedy when he came to Minnesota, and that picture got snapped. And uh, Haggerty was always proud of that. He, uh, he he claimed that he liked John Kennedy a lot. He was he was there for a long time, though, wasn't he? He was a mainstay in oh Minnesota my. for years and years. Oh yeah, Haggerty. You know, there there's a story. I mean, he he was AWA in the early 60s when, when the AWA was formed. But if you go back through the entire decade of the 50s, from about 52 on, hard-boiled Haggerty in the old Minneapolis territory, which is what it was always called, it was under the NWA umbrella in those days, still the Minneapolis Boxing and Wrestling Club. And Haggerty was one of our consistent main event guys. Fans loved him. Fans hated him. He was one of those unique. He was kind of a if you if you saw him in his heyday, guys, he was his interview style was a little bit like Nick Bockwinkles, where he he had that arrogance to him. He very seldom raised his voice. He was more sophisticated, usually had a suit and tie on. And uh, he 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 was really good as a heel or a baby. And he played both roles never really switching characters in the 50s. It depended on who his opponent was. When he wrestled against Fern Gagne and their feud in the 50s, they had classic matches, many of them in the Twin Cities. And uh, a natural rivalry, you know, Vern was always so popular and the local hometown boy. And then you got this arrogant, uh, kind of the Hollywood character, hard-boiled Haggerty. And so their matches were naturals, but he had great matches, HB did, against Kenji Shibuya, the hated Japanese star, or back in the 50s, if you want to say it the way it used to be, they called him a dirty Jap. Right. And that's what uh, that's what Hard Boiled called him in the 50s. And uh, they, they also teamed together. And so Haggerty could kind of play both roles. And then in the early 60s, he, uh, he was one of the main guys that uh, Vern used when he launched the AWA. And that, you know, you guys know that Haggerty went on, he retired from wrestling in 1969 and uh, went into about the next 
15 to 20 years of doing Hollywood movies, TV shows. If you look at 80s television, uh, you'd be hard pressed not to find hard-boiled Haggerty, you know, not as a main character, but he was in a lot of shows. The old Red Fox television program, if you guys ever had a chance to hear or know about that, Haggerty was a regular. And he's been in he's been in episodes of uh, Buck Rogers. I think it's the 25th century or something. One of those shows. Mm-hmm. And he was in the movie Earthquake. Big, big, big movie in the 70s. Uh, just he was in just about everything. So good bit character. He was in Paint Your Wagon with Lee Marvin. Oh, wow. Yeah. And uh, he even sang. if you ever look at Paint Your Wagon, Wagon uh, Haggerty is singing in the show. So he, he was a very versatile character, and I got to know him personally many years later, uh, about 25 years ago, and he and I had a lot of talks before he passed away, and I can't say enough nice things about him. He's one of my personal all-time favorite wrestlers. How did he get that name, just out of curiosity? Well, he's got that that side to him where he's he's kind of a rough neck and kind of rough at the edges, and and he's just hard-boiled. You know, and he he wasn't the. I will tell you this: he was not the very first wrestler to use the name Hard Boiled Haggerty. But there were two other guys uh, before that, um, and and their names are escaping me right now. That Lou Lou uh, Lou Rainier, something like that, and Buddy. Oh boy, his his last name is escaping me. I don't. I've got it in my files. But they they never took the name to any fame as you know they used it short term in the 40s when haggerty came into minneapolis in 1953 it was kind of weird because in minnesota they would quit running wrestling cards from about the middle of june through the end of august the summer months when you know in minnesota we're we're soaking up the the heat and the sun because after August we we got 10 months of you know below zero weather right so they they, normally the wrestling would promote only during the winter months and during the summer Wally Carbo uh, or Dennis Stecker at the no Tony Stecker the original promoter in Minneapolis he brought in um Don Stansock that was hard-boiled Haggerty's birth name Stansock he brought him in and he he built him on a card originally as Don Sparrow. He he called him Sparrow because he said he kind of buzzed around the rear, flew around the ring like a like a bird. But what happened was is he kind of became the top heel, adapted that hard-boiled name, and because they drew so well with him on the card at the end of the June card, they ended up promoting a card in July and another one in August. And from there on out, uh, due to Haggerty, Minnesota, Minneapolis was promoting during the summer. Nice. Did he use that name when he uh, went on to a career in movies? Or did he, he went into the movies. Movie? He was always H.B. Haggerty. Okay. Nice. So that's what you're going to look for in any credits. Okay. He, he, he never went by hard-boiled, but it was always H.B. Haggerty. Okay. Okay. And, you know, Lenny Montana, you know him from The Godfather. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Lenny Montana and HB were very, very good friends. They had been together uh, wrestling and traveling together in the wrestling days. And of course, they were Vern's AWA tag team champions together for a while. That was Luca Brazzi, wasn't it? Yep. Okay. Yep. And then 
uh, Lenny originally, you know, then eventually left wrestling too and hung around Hollywood. And so they made a good pair. Yeah. You know, you, you, <clears throat> excuse me, you, you were talking, uh, obviously everything worked and when it, uh, you know, the, the sellouts and, and the crowds, I'm curious if we can kind of circle back for a second. Uh, Benny mentions a lot on this show growing up. He's, he's just a couple months older than I am. And, uh, how old are you guys? I mean, just, just out of curiosity, it always helps me when I'm talking to fans. Uh, well, I'm 38 and okay. Benny, you're, you're. 40 well, right yeah i have no actually when i to get my birth date i have to go to the lo uh, laboratory and get carbon dated no i'm 66 <laughs> you're 66 yes sir okay and 38 okay it, um so i mean he obviously when i by the time i got into wrestling um you, you know a lot of the the peak this the late 70s you know, 70s early 80s the territory days had started i mean i mid 80s late 80s is when i right. got into it um, um bruno was the was obviously he was the big guy because i lived in maryland at the time and one you had the nwa on one channel and you had wwf on the other uh 10 and 13 respectively and i guess um my question is we i want to kind of circle back to the awa in the the formula that worked so well they did it with bruno they did it with uh especially bruno but they did it with backland and hogan to a point is they would build up this challenger uh, the monster heel the whoever and then you know you'd have a series of, of matches madison square garden the big sellouts where bruno would defend the title against whoever the challenger at a month week whatever was where the awa did it a little differently and they would often put the title or put the stipulation on the, whoever they were building up and Vern played uh, Vern Gagne played the role of the chaser. He was the one going for the title and the buildup was, can he beat this, this monster, whoever the, the, the challenger of the month, the next big thing was. Um, and he was the chaser versus Bruno and Hogan and all being the, the, the defender. Do you think it would have worked uh, the other way? Cause we always talk about the, the what ifs here. Um, do you think, Vern and the AWA would have had the same success with the New York role of Vern being the longtime champion defending against the monster of the month instead of kind of being the underdog, always conquering the next mountain. Well, it's all, you know, like you say, we're, we're playing what if, and, and that's always fun to do. I think in the case of Bruno, that was a formula out East that I have always speculated that it worked best for out East to have, Bruno champion for a long term. And and I will tell you this, guys. I think Bruno being champion for almost eight years the first time around, that was um that may have been a little bit long because you get to the point where he can't be beat. I mean, you never expect him to be beat because he just has turned back year after year, challenger after challenger after challenger. So there's got to be some sort of, in, you know, showing that he's not quite so invincible. But for him, it worked. And in 1971, on January 18th, when Koloff beat Bruno, you know, I've heard the stories for decades now that you could have, it was complete dead silence in the garden. And I, I can believe that because there wasn't a fan there that would have believed that anybody would have beaten Bruno. 
And that played out well. That's what made that such a special thing. So to answer your question with Vern, Vern, of course, you got to remember, wasn't the biggest guy in the business. Vern was about six foot. He was always billed around 225, 228. I don't know if that was exactly what his weight was, but certainly it wasn't more than that. And he was an average-sized guy, wrestler's build of that era. And he had all of the credentials to go with it. You know, he was that amateur wrestler and, and was the real deal. So it made sense for him in a lot of the instances to be the underdog. And there were many, many instances when the W or the AWA would say, can Vern Gagne beat, and we'll throw Cowboy Bill Watts in there. Cowboy Bill was billed at 6'4", 295 pounds. He definitely looked bigger. He was certainly a lot larger than Vern was and a little bit more, uh, uh, not really the scientific style, but a, a rougher style. So can Vern beat him? Oh my God, you know, and it was believable that he couldn't. And in the Bruno sense, it was always Bruno was the guy and people believed he was gonna win. So the formulas were very different. I think they worked for their respective area, era, uh, areas. And I don't think, I don't think Bruno's or the WWWF at the time would have worked here in Minnesota. Well, let me expand on that for just a second, though. Um, we had uh, on the the old program, and um, Larry Zabisco told the story yep. about working. You know, when he, obviously how he, the story how he met Bruno by pretty much breaking into his house, and um, you know the, that he said that the physique he had the Bruno uh, the Bruno physique because they they were workout partners. Um, you know, maybe it was just me being the age I was at the time, but he always struck me as larger than life. He was this this big, burly Italian. And like you said, Vern was more of the everyman build. And I don't mean that as a criticism. I mean, I no. think some of what, what worked with him was you could relate. As a kid, I didn't, I'm not going to grow up to be Bruno, I'm probably going to grow up to look more like Vern Gagne. Uh, you know, kind of, I think one of the, one of the appeals Luthez had uh, in the early days, but to, to get back to the question at hand, um, do you think that, that that worked as, as the underdog because he was never larger than life? I mean, I think of someone like, um, you know, after Bruno and Backlund, when you had like Hulk Hogan, who was, are you know physically one of the biggest people on the roster it was hard for him to play the underdog whereas you know um maybe you know i see and Vern toss around somebody bigger than him on a regular basis might have killed that believability you think maybe that played into it i always saw wrestling as as whether or not you're able to suspend the disbelief when i was a kid you know you have to remember now in the 60s i'm a kid too and i'm watching Vern Gagne who appears to be, you know, bigger than my dad stature-wise, but just an average size guy when it comes right down to it. And I think the believability part of it was is that you knew Vern was good, you knew he had the credentials, you knew he had the record, that was part of the, the whole uh, facade, but you also had him going against guys that were bigger, when he wrestled, he wrestled against Igor, mighty Igor. He wrestled against Sailor Art Thomas, who if you guys are familiar with Sailor Art, okay. he, he was like one of the rare individuals in the 60s who had the big muscular build. He was a muscle man. 
And can Vern go against a guy like that? But I think that's where it came from, is that the fans believed in Vern, which is the believability part of it, but they were always worried about, you know, even when the Crusher was Vern's opponent when he was in the early 60s, when, you know, the Crusher was certainly built a lot bigger and looked meaner, tougher, stronger than Vern. And so Vern, able to kind of play that underdog, um, I think that made him, I think it made him the hero, and that's what made the matches work. He wrestled against Dr. Big Bill Miller, and, and Bill Miller was a lot bigger than Vern. So was Dick the Bruiser as far as, uh, you know, muscle look goes. So I think that's the role that, that uh, Vern played well, and it, it worked. George, um, reading your book, it seemed like a lot of the matches in the 60s and 70s were very bloody. And uh, in the AWA, and then you know, I remember like buying my first wrestling magazines. I mean, they all look like crime scenes. You, rarely could you, did you find a wrestling magazine without you know bloody head on the cover. And I, you know, you kind of get used to that. I really feel like that's something. And I know there's some constraints with TV and everything, but I feel like at least in the WWE, the lack of color in the matches is one of the reasons why there's not as much fan, I guess, emotional investment. Would you agree with that? Well, I think, again, as fans, Benny, we probably are all a little bit different in how we perceived it. Um, growing up in the AWA, I can, I would say that the AWA, and if I go even before AWA into the 50s uh, era, we didn't have a lot of blood, but when we did, it meant something. And what I mean by that is, You'd have you'd have two guys going at each other in a program against each other for maybe two or three or four matches with various outcomes, you know, to build up the next match next and you right. know disqualifications, et cetera, and foreign objects and whatever. You eventually get to that blow-off match, whether it was a usually in, in Minnesota, when I say Minnesota, I'm always talking about the AWA, okay? Right. Usually it would get to that cage match. You know, we're going to finish this once and for all. One of us isn't walking away. That would be the match that you might have the blood in it. Now, me as a fan, as a kid growing up, I can tell you that uh, I was never really a fan of it. I understood the reason for it as I got older, and I understood why, you know, red means more money and more people. I got it, uh, but I didn't need it in my matches, but I understood that people liked it. But I don't think the AWA overused it. They, in, when, I'd, when I'd compare them to a territory like the Sheik's territory in Detroit. Oh yeah. Where, I mean, any fan would tell you that there was not a single match that the Sheik wrestled in that it wasn't a blood fest. Every match, the man was, you know, between him and his opponent. I don't know if I could have had a steady diet of that because it it just seemed like, okay, we're going there to watch this these two guys butcher each other tonight. But it worked for that territory. And that kind of goes back to what, uh, what Dan asked a minute ago about, you know, would Bruno work or the formula work in the AWA? I think each territory had their own, their own formula that worked for them. But when we had the Crusher, and Bobby Heenan, um, Wahoo McDaniel was one of the 
the great bleeders. I mean, that sounds like a terrible thing to say that you're a great bleeder, but they were able to do it and do it right when the opportunity was calling for it. And if you saw it in the magazines, at least for the AWA, it was like the only time the magazine, which normally they were published out east, was normally the only time they would pick it up is because it had the blood flavor to it. So made for, you know, classic covers on their magazines or, or stories within. So me personally, I was I was not really a fan, but I understood it. And I was OK with it when it was right. Well, <clears throat> excuse me. You know, uh, I was curious when you started uh, talking about the, the, the blood, was there, a, um, you know, obviously, I, I guess, goes back to what you were saying about it being regional. I was hoping maybe you could expand a little bit. Um, Benny hit the nail on the head. The early wrestling magazines everywhere. I mean, Wahoo, uh, some of the some of the other talents that that just, you know, even even in the later as you got into like the 70s and the 80s and, and the matches with Lawler and Dundee and some of these other ones throughout. Was that was that specifically something that Vern wanted or was that maybe the crowd wouldn't have responded? It was kind of weird when you talk about crowds, because I think I can explain this to you. In the AWA, if you went to the Chicago Amphitheater, now you got to remember Chicago has always been considered a tougher city. Uh, things are a little bit wilder in Chicago, Illinois. And when, when the AWA and the WWA, because they co-owned the, the, the city, Bruiser and Vern both ran it together, those fans in Chicago, they would literally be yelling blood from the opening match. And this is true. And so I think if you looked at AWA matches, you probably had the Crusher and the Bruiser and the Vachans and the Blackjacks and the Chain Gang, those guys, Bruiser. Um, they had more blood in Chicago than any other city. They gave the fans what they wanted. It, it was a different, it was just it's just the same as that certain wrestlers could go to another territory and not be over as much as they were in the territory they'd come from. Fans were different. I remember, and this is a little bit off the blood, but I remember when uh, Pedro Morales, he was you know, popular out East. He was the WWF champion for a couple of years. Obviously he was popular with the, the, uh, the population which is why the Italians and uh, uh, Puerto Ricans, right? That's what Pedro was. Yes, correct. Yeah. Yes. You know, the, the population for New York and that territory, it worked well to have them as champions and Pedro was over. Now, when he came to the AWA in 1977, I can tell you Vern did not bury Pedro in bad matches. The fans just didn't respond to him. He wrestled against uh, the Super Destroyer, which was Don Jardine. He wrestled against Angelo Mosca. He wrestled against Ray Stevens. He wrestled against Nick Bockwinkle for the title. I mean, those were some of his high profile matches and he had tag matches. Pedro just was not as well received. He didn't have the popularity. Not that the fans didn't cheer him. It's he wasn't the guy that you could put in that main event because for AWA fans, he didn't have that appeal. And that's to say nothing bad about Pedro because I thought he was great. 
but you know, he couldn't have had this, if they would have put the championship on him here, or they would have uh, made him the perennial challenger to the title, uh, the fans wouldn't have bought it. So I, I think that's all I can say is that different things worked for different territories. Makes sense. So, uh, George, I want to cover this one. Before, just in case we weren't out of time, I want to ask this one now. Uh, and we, we spoke about this before the show, or actually I, I messaged you before the show about this. And I, I think you actually covered it in part on the podcast. And that's uh, when Hulk went up against Nick Bockwinkle for the title. I think it was April 24th, 1983, uh, Super Sunday. Yeah. And Hulk dropped the leg on him, pinned him, you know, held the belt up. And then they, you know, the reverse finish, he got DQ'd, I guess, for throwing Nick over the top rope. You know, long story short, now Nick is still a champion. I guess Hulk goes away maybe, what, six, eight months later. Um, and there's a lot of speculation as far as, and everybody has their opinion on this, but uh, you have a lot more to, you know, be behind the scenes to offer. If if they had kept, if they had given Hulk the belt in the AWA, I personally don't think it would have, it would have delayed what happened in New York, but I don't think it would have stopped it. So I, I really want to get your, you know, your educated uh, thesis on this. Well, you, you watched our show today and you saw that we did cover that a little bit. And very, I mean, we just, we didn't touch it in, in real depth, but we touched on it because that's way at the end of the AWA's uh, storied history. Here, here's the bottom line, guys. Hulk Hogan, you know, all, I call them armchair quarterbacks. You know, we, we have a habit of doing that with all of our sports. We talk about what they should have done, what they could have done, what they didn't do, why they didn't do this. And, you know, as fans, we are, we are, we think we have the answers that the promoters, the wrestlers and, and, or the, the football owners and managers, coaches don't. Bottom line is this with Hogan. Everybody now for the past 25 years or 30 years, whatever it is, they say, well, Vern, he made the biggest goof of his life. He should have put the title on Hogan. He didn't put the title on Hogan. So that's the reason the AWA died. First of all, this is the opinion part of my, my talk here. I do not believe in my heart of hearts that putting the title on Hogan would have made one difference of whether or not Hogan was going to stay or not stay. Hogan was going to go where the money was out east. And Vince promised him money. Now, Vern was paying him too, obviously. But Hogan wasn't a wrestler first and foremost. And Vern, stubborn as, as you want to call him, he was he was being stubborn to the point where he wasn't going to put the title on Hogan because Hogan was a character. And he was drawing, Vern drew so well with Nick Bockwinkle and Bobby Heenan in his corner as a heel champion. It is Nick Bockwinkle that made Hulk Hogan during his AWA stay. And the fact that the fans in the arena believed in their heart of hearts that Hogan was the better guy, that showed that it was working, the formula that Vern wanted. Because if they go away thinking that Hogan got screwed or Hogan was the better man, in their eyes, Hogan was the champ. And he didn't need to put the title on Hogan to prove that. So Hogan made a better challenger. 
and he was drawing well with Nick. And here's the thing I want to point out. Nick Bockwinkle by that time is 48. What is he, 48 going on 50 years old, something like that? Yeah. And at that age, he was kind of a freak of nature, and I don't mean that as, a, as an insult. He was as good or better at that age than he was 10 years or 20 years older, younger. And he was so good at making every wrestler look better than they were. Hogan wasn't a wrestler. If Hogan didn't have a good opponent, he wasn't as impressive in the ring. I mean, sure, he can do the pose downs and the, you know, the, the fancy interviews and all that. But that was a generation of fans that were getting more and more into that type of thing. And that worked for Hogan. But it was, it was Nick Bockwinkle and Bobby Heenan that made Hogan look so impressive. And here's the deal. Vince McMahon came to Vern and he took Hogan. Took Hogan right from under him. Told Hogan not to appear. I'll pay you not to appear. Hogan left. Vince needed Hogan to start his, what I call an experiment at the time to see if he can go national. And Hogan was the poster child that he needed. The big six foot six blonde Adonis you know, tanned and blonde hair. I mean, you name it, Hogan had that look. That was the look of the mid 80s. And it, it worked for Vince, but putting the title on him wouldn't have made a difference. And Vern wasn't gonna do it. And to his discredit, Vern, like all the other old school promoters at that time, did not believe in their heart that Vince, Vince Jr. had a snowball's chance in hell of making that expansion effort really happen. And that was their fault, but it was the changing of the guard. It was the way the business was changing. So it just was everybody being in the right place at the right time, or in Vern's case, and out of all the other old school promoters, um, in the wrong place at the right time. And I also point out to people that Vern isn't the only one that Vince targeted and took down, but Vern was the hardest that he targeted by taking his top talent. And the other territories, they also went down at the hand of Vince McMahon when Vince took their top guys, you know, like going into Mid-South and taking Junkyard Dog and Ted DiBiase, going into Texas and taking Von Erich, Kev or uh, Kerry. And uh, you, you can go down the list of guys that he took. So it, it was, it was an interesting time in wrestling. The other thing was is that all the barriers were, all the fences were taken down. The um, the old guard where they shook a hand and, and it was a verbal contract no longer happened. Now guys would say they're coming to a card and I covered this on the, on, on the podcast a little bit today when we were talking. Um, they, they said they'd appear on a card and the night of the card, they're not, they're not there. Well, you can't run a promotion that way. So eventually that's what happened. Putting the title on Hogan would not have made a difference. And any fan who wants to believe that that would have been the save all, I'm sorry, it might have taken Vince longer to succeed at his endeavor without Hogan, but he would have done it anyway. As I pointed out in the little bit we talked about it today, and I think Mick Karch also stated that Vince had uh, Sergeant Slaughter and a lot of other guys that he could have went to in the short term to be the Hogan. So I don't think so. I hope that answers your question. 
what do you think, George, that there was a reluctance uh, from Vern to to put it on Hogan because you know, let's face it, Hogan wasn't a wrestler; he was a character. Did Vern believe that the champion should be a wrestler? Well, he did believe it should be a wrestler, but I think the real key here is is that in any promotion, let's not even count the going forward after Hogan left. In any promotion, the titles were usually on the wrestlers in the territory that you could count on to be in the territory, or they were the owner of the territory, or the booker in the territory. So it was somebody that you could trust. In in Nick Bockwinkel, Vern had someone he could trust. Nick was loyal. Nick wasn't leaving. Nick and Vern were very good friends outside the ring. And Nick was faithful to Vern. So Vern didn't have to worry about Nick. He had to worry about Hogan. Because if Hogan decides to get up and leave, well, that's what he was going to do. And Vern wasn't going to put the title on him for that reason. And also the fact that Vern, yeah, you're right. He wanted, he, he in most cases, he emphasized a wrestling background. And that's why people don't realize this, but Mad Dog Vashon. Yeah, he was a roughneck in the ring, but Mad Dog could wrestle. Mad Dog was loyal to Vern during the years that he was with the AWA. So that was why he got a title run and he held it for about three years back in the 60s. You said that, you know, that Vern, obviously, he deserves more credit for some of the decisions that get judged. You said, you know, hindsight 2020 and all that. Something that, that Vern doesn't get enough credit for is his skill as a trainer. Uh, Benny pointed out, we were talking before the show, that just, just the class of 1973, Ric Flair, uh, Ken Patera, friend of the show, and, and of course his son Greg. Do you have any good stories about Vern as a trainer and can maybe talk about some of his more illustrious alumni? Well, the one thing about Vern as a trainer is now we get back into that that same thing where Vern always emphasized wrestling first, character second, if you need a character. Vern wasn't opposed to having a character or a non-wrestler on his card if they could draw money, because that was always the name of the game. But he wanted wrestlers. He wanted guys to have the basics and know how to do it, how to really do a match and make it look real. Keeping the word wrestling in the on the marquee, you know, whereas today it's entertainment. They advertise it as entertainment. They take they'd like to take the wrestling out of the world wrestling entertainment just to have world entertainment, I think. I don't know. But yeah, Vern's Vern's uh training camps. Vern always took pride in he wanted Vern received his early training from Joe Pazendak, an old legendary shooter, tough old SOB, who was very noted in the 40s and the 50s. And Joe took Vern under his wing and also Vern received his early training for the pro wrestling from George Gordienko, another accomplished real wrestler. So Vern always took pride in he wanted to give it back, so to speak. He wanted to bring guys into the business that uh, could, could really wrestle. So he had guys like, he brought in Dick the Bruiser. How many people know that? That he he trained Dick the Bruiser. Now the Bruiser took his own route and was his, his 
path was better as a, a roughneck and a bully, you know, in his early career anyway. But he got his training from Vern. Larry Hennig. Larry spent a lot of his career as a heel and a damn good one. But he had those fundamentals down and he was a real worker and a real wrestler. And, you know, Vern trained the three Anderson brothers, Gene Anderson, Larry Hainimi, and Al Rogowski. The other two, of course, being Lars Anderson and, and Ole Anderson. Well, we know they all went on to stellar careers. Uh, Gene worked for the AWA from 61 to 1960, uh, almost 66. And he actually helped Vern with some of those early 60s training camps after Gene got his training from Vern. And then he went on to the South and Lars Anderson, Larry Hainimi was trained by Vern, great amateur out of St. Cloud State. And uh, he became Lars Anderson. Ole Anderson came to Vern. Vern trained him. And you know, you look at guys like uh, Dick Blood, who was Ricky Steamboat. You can't get pretty much anybody better than the way Dick Blood could work a match. I mean, his matches with Ric Flair are classics. And uh, he trained Jim Brunzel, of course, and his son, Greg. Billy Robinson helped him with a lot of those training camps in the 70s. Now, how can you not be good at your profession if you got Vern Gagne and Billy Robinson training you? So, I mean, that was, but all of the guys, this is the important thing to remember, and I've said this to people, look at the landscape of wrestling in the 70, the 60s, 70s, and into the mid 80s. And look at the talent that was around the country. And in just about every territory of any note, there were Vern Gagne trained wrestlers that were headlining in those territories. And of course, headlining in his own AWA as well. Guys like Buddy Rose and Sergeant Slaughter and Blackjack Mulligan. Uh, Vern trained so many guys and he enjoyed it. It was part of, he, he, he just enjoyed doing it. And what he would do is he'd, he'd get his guys trained. They'd work for him a little bit. Then he'd call up another promoter. He'd call up Don Owen or Eddie Graham out to Ray Shire in California, Fritz Von Erich. He called them all. He'd say, I got, a, I got a young guy here. I'd like you to use him. Get him some training with some of your boys down there. And that's how these guys got their experience. These territories were what made every wrestler better than they probably could have been if they had no territories because they had places to go to learn all the different styles, work with the different characters and find what works for them the best. So did that answer your question? Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. And I made a list one time for Greg Gagne about 10 years ago. And all in all, there's, there's over a hundred wrestlers that Vern brought into the business. And with but the rarest exception, they all were main event wrestlers. Depending on the territories they were in, but they were all main event wrestlers. Wow. George, I want to go back a little bit. Uh, when you were with us the last time, <clears throat> one of the favorite stories that you told was you were 19 years old running a spot show somewhere in Minnesota. And uh, I guess Dr. X was the main event, Dick Beyer. And I guess there was an issue with Pepper Gomez with an injury and then something else with Blackjack Lanza with uh, some travel. And then uh, so Dick Beyer was suggesting some kind of match. And you actually said, well, why don't we do this? 
And I, I guess when I when I heard that and when it sunk in, sunk in is like, how did you have the presence of mind? Because I'm sure you were still in awe of these guys, you know, basically, you know, virtually out of high school. What? How did you have the presence of mind to suggest another ending, which I guess the, he actually liked your finish, correct? Um, with with regard to the Dr. X thing, I was actually 18 years old. It was in April of 1970, and I was still just a couple couple weeks away or a couple months away from graduating. You're still high in high school. Yeah, I was still oh, in high okay. school. It was the card was held at my high school. Um, part of you know, I, I questioned myself after I suggested this to Dr. X because in hindsight, I thought it took a lot of nerve, and I didn't know how I how I did it, but I did. What really happened was pretty much the way you related, Benny, where Pepper Gomez was scheduled to be our main event against Dr. X. And uh, Jack Lanza, Blackjack, was scheduled to go against Bob Windham, who became the future Blackjack Mulligan later on, a couple of years later. And then we had a, a regular opener of Kenny J versus Lee Matson, which were two television uh, enhancement wrestlers, jobbers. So when Doc told me that Gomez couldn't wrestle, and Gomez was there, he was sitting in the locker room, he was sitting on the bench in the locker room, and he told me he couldn't wrestle because he had an ear infection, inner ear infection, which I'm buying to this day that that was fact. We had um, We had the gymnasium for the card, it was pretty much filled, I do not remember what the exact attendance was, but I know the size of our gymnasium and it was it was filled. So Gomez, I'm thinking, really wasn't feeling well and that he wasn't going to work. The other side of it was is Lanza didn't show up. Uh, Doc said that he had been stranded in Chicago due to due to uh, air travel. That was an old excuse that they used on cards, so I don't know if that was real or not. Maybe Lanza was never going to appear. I don't know. So Doc come up with his own idea. You know, here's what we're going to do. And Doc, by the way, was sitting there with his Dr. X mascot. He wasn't there as Dick Byer. So he's in his Dr. X mode, but he's kind of running the scene back there. He says, so what we're going to do is we're going to put um, me and Bob Windham against Kenny J and Lee Matson in the main event in a tag match. And then we'll have two preliminary matches out of the four of us. And I immediately, I, I just, I mean, I, I remember just kind of getting a lump in my throat, like you're gonna what? And I just said, could we do it a different way? And Doc was very open, He's, you know, and again, in his Dick Byer, Dr. X destroyer voice, he says, yeah, what do you wanna do? I told him, I said, well, can we put you and Matson as a team against Bob Windham and Kenny G? And that, and I said, and that way we've got a top wrestler on each team. And Doc goes, yeah, I don't care, whatever you want to do. So I felt really good afterwards. I mean, I then I kind of had that, my stomach goes, wow, I just put a main event together, you know? <laughs> so... That's really how it happened, how I mustered up the strength to do that. I think, you know, maybe someone else would have said, oh, yeah, sure, whatever, and go out there and have this stinkeroo of a card, you know, where you got two main event guys going against two guys on TV. That was a TV match if he'd have done it Doc's way. So I did it that way. So that's the story behind it. And yeah, that also started a 50-year friendship. 
Oh yeah, you guys. Yeah, that that is where that was the plus to it. Um, obviously, anytime I saw Doctor X after that, I was able to. Uh, uh, he left the territory actually about six months later, seven months later, and uh, yeah, it was about six months. He left the territory for a year, but it was a friendship that we had then for the rest of the time. And whenever he came back, uh, he was here in 72 and 73 and the rest is history. I mean, he was one of my, he's also my all time favorite wrestler. I always have people say, who's your favorite wrestler? And that's kind of hard for me to decide when I've seen thousands of them over the last 70 years, but doc is number one period and outside the ring, just the greatest guy. I mean, he, um, he's been to my house. He was the presenter when I was in Cauliflower Alley a few years back getting the Historian Award that Doc put me over. And uh, I, I just can never thank him enough. He's just a super guy. I, I miss him. He's been gone a couple years now. As we wrap up, I guess. Oh, come on. We can't wrap up. We got four pages to go at least. <laughs> Plenty. Plenty of, uh, like I said, plenty of time. Uh, uh, we could talk for another few hours, still not scratch the surface. But as we wrap up, I guess my final question, you, you talked at the top of the show, your podcast, the plans, the, a, uh, the AWA, all the, all the connections and the voices. As things like the network and tape libraries and whatnot become more and more available and people – in my age and older, uh, and re even wrestling fans, younger teenagers, kids are seeing the AWA and the NWA in some of these moments for the first time. How do you think the, re the AWA would be viewed from a historical perspective? I think from a historical perspective, the AWA is as revered as any promotion that existed back in that era. Uh, when you look at all of the territories that were so successful, when you talk about Florida or the Pacific Northwest or California, Hawaii, out east, Detroit, Atlantic Coast, all points in between, St. Louis, anytime you talk to old school fans, the AWA has that, that aura about it where it was the best of the best. You know, back in the 60s and the 70s, when you went to the newsstand, the newsstand magazines, the wrestling magazines, would always have their official world rankings or ratings of the wrestlers. Well, there were three alliances in those days, the AWA, NWA, and the WWWF. And the AWA was always the territory that everybody looked to. The NWA wasn't a territory, it was a champion. So various wrestlers that were listed under him as challengers were from other, other wrestling territories. The AWA had a roster all the time that was second to none. And it was a roster that changed, but with the mainstays that they had, they were always able to build incredible heat and storylines and memories. They were consistent in their promoting and they were a promotion. As I said on our podcast today, every wrestler of any note, and I've had this told to me by all, and none of them are here anymore, so they can't back this up for me, but it's fact. They wanted to work for the AWA. They wanted, they strived to get to the AWA. It was the place that 
you you reached your peak when you got here. And so in hindsight, I think it's the one territory that most fans, and this was the reason that Mick and I and Chris Tubbs, we decided we, we want to do this podcast. It's the one area, the one territory that seems to have the most interest. The other thing is, is because so many, so much talent came out of it. And everybody knows that Hulk Hogan and the Road Warriors and all these other stars later on came out of here. So yeah, I think in history, it, it bodes really well, but the story, the history of it is not always accurate. And that's why we want to do the podcast we're doing. George, so uh, one of the things that I heard on the podcast was you guys actually uh, read some fan questions. Uh, So if anybody does want to ask you guys a question for a future podcast, how do they do that? Well, there's a couple different ways. A lot of times on my page, my Facebook page, which is George Shire's Wrestling Time Machine, I also have the AWA American Wrestling Association page. Not the AWA WWA page. We ignore that one for a lot of reasons. But the AWA American Wrestling Association. So on those two pages, along with Slick Mick Old School Wrestling page, anybody that's a member of that of our pages can go and send us a private message. Uh, we will answer. You know, we will respond to you, and we will uh, take all your suggestions or questions. In, in tow for future episodes. Otherwise, um, from time to time on the show, we will give you our uh, email address or something like that. But be open, ask us. I, I received four emails right before I did your show tonight. I had four, not emails, four private messages that came from people about what they want to see or they had a question. And obviously, we're not going to be able to do all in one show. So we're going to log these and when time comes, we will bring them up. Very nice. Well, I guess the final thought for you then, or or final thought to you, I should say, is uh, what does the future have in store? I know you said you don't want to give away too much, but um, what can fans expect? And, and where, uh, outside of the, you said, wherever podcasts can be listened to, do you have uh, any other social media platforms to plug with the show? Well, I obviously I promoted our Facebook pages, and as I said, it's good. The podcast itself is going to be available on. They're listed on my site. Um, Chris Tubbs takes care of that, guys. I teased the other day. I said, you know, they're located on Spotify and Pandora and Amazon and Partridge in a Pear Tree. You know, I don't. I, I'm I'm just not as familiar with that. So they're listed on on my page and on Slick Mix page. And you, you can go to the different places to find it if that's good for you. And future, we, like I said, we are going to offer inside stuff. We'll tell you why a guy left. We'll tell you why a guy came. We'll tell you why a guy didn't get this or that in the AWA. Uh, we'll tell you who got along, who didn't get along. All of those things will happen kind of spontaneously as Chris Tubbs presents us with questions. And Benny, Chris is doing exactly the way you did it, where he has it sort of formatted out and he wants to, uh, you know, direct it that way. And that's good with Mick and I, because we fly by the seat of our pants. We, we, can, we can talk and, 
you ask the questions, we'll give you the answers, and sometimes you'll have to cut us off because we go too long. Well, uh, the the podcast is AWA Unleashed. Anywhere podcasts can be listened to. George, uh, this is the second time you've been on the show in a month and a half. We appreciate having you, and we'll definitely have you back because I know there's so much more we could talk about. You hit the nail on the head with your final thought about the AWA being such a beloved and just interesting uh, piece of history because of the talent that came through, went through, and came out of there. But uh, again, George Shire, thank you so much for joining us. The podcast is AWA Unleashed. Anywhere podcast can be listened to. You guys, thank you again. I know that uh, you don't normally have guests on return visits, so a rematch so fast, but I'm glad I got one. And uh, you guys do a great job, and you make a great team. And I'm, I'm appreciative that you've had us on to, uh, or had me on, to highlight what we're going to be doing. Thank you. Our pleasure. Thank you, Thank sir. You, sir. Have yourself a good night, George. You too, guys. Thank you so Stay much. Stay warm I in appreciate Minnesota. Your, appreciate your support. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Benny, you're, Benny, you're one of my top fans with uh, reading my book. So thanks. All right, my pleasure. Take care, guys. Take care now. Bye. Top fan, Benny, what do you think? It's good stuff. You know, growing up, so my first magazine uh, I bought in 1968, I guess. And I said, who is this Gagney guy? You know, I didn't even know his name was Ganya. Um, but the only thing, the only information I could just, you know, get about the AWA was just when they occasionally covered it. They didn't really cover the AWA in the magazines that much. It was usually W because most of the magazines did come out of New York. Right. The, the Aftermath, Wrestling Review, Wrestling World. It was a lot of Bruno stuff. And, you know, there's other territories, but th there wasn't a lot about the AWA. So to have a podcast like this where they're really going to get in depth and cover the history of the territory. I, I oh, yeah. listened to the first episode. They, they could go on forever with that podcast. Oh, absolutely. You know, we're going to have to have George back on because one of the notes I made, I wanted to ask him the, you know, every, obviously they're, they're going to start from the beginning, but I wanted to get his thoughts on what was it? Super Clash, the uh, Jerry Lawler against uh, uh, when when they had the title unification match was, with was Jerry Lawler Eric? and Kerry Von Eric. Yes. Yeah where that was kind of the beginning of the end, because I know Lawler left. I guess the story was Ganya didn't pay him for the show. Um, I, I was curious to get his thoughts on it, but we'll have to definitely have him back. Yeah, I was going to ask maybe about Pro Wrestling USA, too, uh, which was towards the end. Yeah, but I mean, this is a, I mean, twice now, Benny, in, in, in literally twice in, in six or seven weeks, We've had George on the show, and that's two hours of conversation, and we've covered 1% of what we'd like to talk right. to him about. I mean, George could be on every show for the rest of, well, the, the rest of you know the year, and we I still think they wouldn't get enough. That's why I can't recommend enough for people interested in the AWA and the stories. Check them out, AWA Unleashed, uh, anywhere podcasts can be listened to, and we'll definitely uh, – I know that they'll be active. We'll have some conversations of it on the Dan and Denny page. And we've got, uh, speaking of which, we've got uh, 2022 ahead of us. A lot of good uh, good stuff to talk about this year and some stuff coming down the pipeline that should be fun. I know we, we swore off uh, last year. We swore off the uh, certain events, and I'm glad we did because 
nothing but bad news coming out of some some facets and nothing but good news coming out of others um it's just been it's been it's been it was a heck of a year and uh here's to another one right benny i swore off wwe and oreos and i might go back to oreos but i'm not going back to wwe oreos what, a, what that's Okay, I'm sorry. I gotta ask, what 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 drove you to swear off Oreos? I'm, I'm just in training, so I mean, I, you know, it's, <laughs> it's and it, Oreos is one of those things. I mean, I can't, you know, my brother and I used to like we'd say to each other, "Hey, you want to do a line?" You know, and a, a line was a line of Oreos. And you're like, <laughs> yeah, but now they've got the uh, the good flavors, and and if you haven't had the mega stuff Oreos, where you only you only get five or six of them in the box, but each one's about a half pound of cream, you know. Right. Yeah. The problem is, like, I can't have one Oreo. If I could have one <laughs> Oreo, I would have an Oreo. But right. No. No. You. You're right. You got to end up eating half the pack and then feeling bad about yourself, and then eating the rest because you feel bad about that you just ate right. half pack Oreos. And then there's the yeah. morning after, like. Oh, <laughs> uh, good times, Benny. Um. But uh, like I said, we continue to move along. We had fun, um, and we'll see so much more coming down the pipeline, down the future. And here's to it, right? This is the uh, first episode of 2022. I think we, we couldn't have started with a better story. And here's to uh, and here's to another year. Best is yet to come. Absolutely. So for the BS Express himself, Benny Scala, I'm Dan Sebastiano. Have a good night, everyone, and we'll see you next time we're in the ring. Night, folks.